Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're very welcome to Wednesday afternoon's Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. I have to say it's a little bit easier today. Yesterday, the first day back, it's a struggle. No matter what you do in life and you have the break, getting back into the swing of things, well, the first day presents a real challenge. But we're up and running and certainly off for the new year. Welcome to the show. If you want to get in touch with us, if you have anything to say, don't forget the usual numbers, 086-1800-658. You can WhatsApp or text me directly here to the studio. Lots of chat, music and more besides to come over the next couple of hours. But we begin today with a man who is very familiar to you if you are a regular listener to Late Lunch because he was virtually with us every week for almost two years from the start of the pandemic. He hasn't been chatting to us for a while, but he's back today because, you know, it hasn't gone away. Yes, he's the head of the Department of Biology and director of the Human Health Research Institute at Maynooth University. Happy New Year, Professor Paul Moyna. Good afternoon, Jerry. Good to, good to chat with you again. And you too. Well, Paul, just I suppose to put the current situation in context, flu plus COVID plus RSV, the perfect storm, Paul. Yeah, there's a lot of things going on at the moment, Jerry. obviously, and it's putting the healthcare system under and our hospitals under serious pressure. So, yeah, a lot of it is due to these respiratory viruses. So, as you mentioned, there's three of them at the moment that's making things very difficult. So, we're obviously familiar with covid but also on top of that now we've got flu and we've got uh, RSV as well. Probably some of the circumstances that have exacerbated this and made it worse is the fact that over the last two to three years, virtually flu and RSV has disappeared. And that has mostly been due to the fact that you know a lot of social distancing, we were staying apart from each other. Mm. So the levels of RSV and flu decreased to very, very low levels. But typically in, in a season, like if you look at something like flu, about 15% of the population would get flu and would probably be offered some protection over the, the following years. But, be, but because, you know, it really hasn't been around for the last few years, there's, there's, there's more susceptible to the virus. Yes. And as a result of this now, there's higher numbers, higher numbers of flu, probably higher flu cases earlier in the, the winter season. Um, and then on top of that, we're also seeing the same with RSV. We probably could predict this somewhat because we looked at the Southern Hemisphere and what happened in places like Australia, for example, in their winter time. Again, we saw these very high levels of flu and RSV. And on top of that, then obviously COVID, COVID hasn't gone away. Uh, it's obviously we've reasonably good control over now with respect to vaccines and protecting us against serious illness. But nonetheless, COVID is still there and obviously causing problems as well. The numbers with COVID, you know, we've started to hear them again in the context of what it was at the peak of the pandemic. It's not near that, is it? No, it's not near that. And it's very difficult to compare, Jerry, because that obviously at the peak of the pandemic, you know, our testing was at very high levels, whereas our testing now has been greatly, significantly reduced. So it's very difficult to make that comparison. Um, as well, if you look at probably numbers that are more robust and that you can compare more with in terms of people are ending up with hospital. Again, that comparison is, is difficult as well because we hear about the numbers of patients in hospital with COVID, but are they in hospital because of COVID or they, have they you know, obtained COVID possibly even in the hospitals themselves? So it's, it's very difficult to look at the, the impact, but what we do know is the vaccines are still doing a really good job in terms of protecting against serious illness. Those who end up in you know with serious illness as a result of COVID, they still tend to be those who are inherently at a higher risk of developing severe COVID. So uh, older people, 
uh, those immunocompromised or those with multiple comorbidities. So, but certainly in terms of impact, we are seeing some of those cases ending up in hospitals, but certainly the vaccines are still doing a good job in terms of protecting against serious illness. Would you be concerned on two fronts? Uh, you see uh, what's happened in China. They tried to maintain the zero COVID policy and, of course, it's absolutely failed. So then they sort of more or less allowed the shackles off and people are travelling again and coming into Europe and will eventually end up in Ireland from China. And this new variant that they've been talking about in the last 24 hours or so in the States, XBBB, XBB.1, Point five uh, yeah. that they're a little bit concerned about. It's a, it's a, a variant that's uh, developed in the States. What about those two and them coming to Ireland, which inevitably they probably will? I think if not already here, Jerry. so th- these variants, it's going to be impossible, in my view, it's going to be impossible to stop these variants moving mm. from country to country. If you look at that XBB 1.5, again, we're still looking at their it's sort of a sublineage of Omicron. So we're still looking at these Omicron variants and it's just what we call sublineages uh, of them. Uh, again, very transmissible form of the virus, but thankfully, again, that doesn't translate, doesn't seem to translate into more uh, greater disease severity, which is a good thing. And the other good news is that, again, the vaccine is still protecting against these, not so much in terms of protecting against infection. So if we're trying to use these vaccines to you know, to protect in terms of hospital numbers, things like that. In my view, that's not going to going to work because the vaccines we're already using and those who've been triple dosed or those vulnerable populations who've had additional uh, boosters, they're doing a really good job in terms of protecting against serious illness. Right. But in terms of using the vaccines to try to reduce numbers, and I don't think that's going to work, Terry, because the vaccines do a fantastic job they're doing what they were designed to do to protect against serious illness, but they're not able to protect in a, in a very effective manner against uh, getting infected. Yes. So so, you, so people, are, and, and I, I notice it myself, I'm hearing of more people, say, in my wider circle who've uh, got COVID and they are vaccinated too, but you, you, you can't, you're going to still get it. But the vaccinations yeah. protect against the worst exactly. of it. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And especially like in, in those vulnerable populations, the boosters certainly help and it sort of, probably gives them even short-term, for some people, some short-term protection even against uh, infection. If you look at what's happening in China, you, you referenced China there, Jerry. Mm. There's a number of reasons why they're going through, uh, you know, quite a problematic period. Some of it, as you said, is due to the fact that they adopted this zero COVID policy. And when they've lifted that, there's probably less of the population who actually have been infected by the virus. Yes. So there's a vulnerable population there. The uptake of the virus wasn't as high as, for example, with ourselves, and the vaccine that they used is a different vaccine from the RNA vaccines that we've tended to use, and it's not as uh, effective. Mm. So as a result, you're seeing an impact there in China, which has probably somehow been delayed, and they're seeing the impact of probably what we would have seen earlier on in the pandemic. The, the numbers are still they're quite frightening. If you look at them proportionally, they're probably similar to what we'd have seen here in, in Ireland as well. But it's going to be very difficult to stop. Now, you know, there's, there's been discussion in terms of travel restrictions and things like that but I think what this virus has shown us is that even in places like China where the restrictions were very very severe it's almost impossible to stop the transmission Mm. of this virus it's going to be very difficult to stop you know the import of new variants I think that's just the reality of the situation So you would encourage people to make sure they're up to date with their vaccinations you've spoken extensively to me in the past about you know uh, the hands thing again we don't hear that anymore wearing a mask if you're concerned ventilation all those type of things still apply Paul yeah, those things help. I don't think there's any panacea, Jerry, and I don't think it's yes. going to be uh, like you can, you know, introduce various things to try to reduce and the will have. Vaccines are really important. I think they're really important, more important for those vulnerable populations. I think most of the population who've had their two doses and booster, they're in a pretty good situation in terms of being protected from serious illness. The vulnerable populations, the elderly, immunocompromised, those with multiple comorbidities, again, I think obviously boosters are, would be highly recommended uh, in those cases. So that, that's probably the biggest, the biggest protection we have against this virus is our immunity, our immune system. And basically what we do is we prime our immune system by vaccination. So that's the biggest protection that we have against this virus. But there's obviously other challenges out there now in terms of flu and RSV as well. And, you know, hospitals are coming under severe pressure. But, you know, but I, I think sometimes, Jerry, we can, we can probably just use these respiratory viruses 
as maybe a reason and excuse in terms of blaming all of what we're seeing now. Viruses, obviously, and respiratory viruses do contribute to that, but I think there's a larger issue here in terms of our capacity. And one of the things that probably needs to be discussed is that if we look at our population and with all the medical technologies that have arisen over the last number of years, thankfully the good news is people are living longer. But as a result, you know, older people especially are more prone to disease, dementia, frailty, and this introduces capacity issues where we need to increase our capacity. And certainly if you look at countries like and over the UK at the moment where their health systems over the last decade or so has come under increasing pressure, probably just capacity hasn't been increased, not only in acute hospitals, but also in terms of step-down facilities and community care. I think many of those problems probably apply here as well. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a complex problem in terms of the pressure points that we see Yes, some of them are seized and some of them are due to this increased viral load, but I think there's bigger issues there to be to be addressed as well, and obviously capacity is one of the big ones. But at this rate, I think there needs to be this recognition that this problem is not going to weigh. It's not going to go to it, go away, and these challenges will persist and probably get more so in the coming years. Yes, and, and really, Paul, it's a challenge that needs to be addressed now and not, you know, down the road. When you see yesterday 931 people waiting on trolleys in emergency departments and I see this morning Dr. Paddock Gilligan, a consultant in emergency medicine at Beaumont Hospital, has come out and said that we need 5,000 additional beds across our acute hospitals. 950 is being talked about at the moment and he says that's way short and that bears out what you say an ageing population and a growing population, Paul? Yeah, absolutely. And there's the consequence. Almost we're a victim in terms of our success in terms of with some of the technologies and in terms of some of the healthcare and that people actually are living longer, which is a good thing. And obviously we want to increase not only lifespan, but health span in terms of the length of time that somebody lives a healthy and, you know, a good quality uh, life. But inevitably, you know, older people, and as we get uh, in the ageing population, as people live into longer years, you know, there's more conditions like dementia, for example, some chronic diseases that does introduce increasing burden, increased burden on the health system. And I'm not sure if really that has been, you know, we hear about winter plans, and but when we hear about winter plans, and even like I heard the minister earlier on discussing in terms of how we're going to respond, how the health system is going to respond to these increasing numbers. But to a degree, we, we know that this happens every year. And this year, we knew that this is, the levels were going to be higher because we got sort of a sense of this from what we saw in the Southern Hemisphere with Australia, where the flu season was greater than in previous years. And again, we should have used that. And so we should be aware of this increased burden, these increased numbers. Uh, and, you know, the additional requirements on our health system, but it's almost as if we're not prepared or, and we hear these numbers being mentioned, but the numbers that seem to be mentioned don't seem to bear any resemblance to what our clinicians are telling us in terms of actually what is needed on the ground. So I think, you know, serious action is required there, Jerry, but a plan is required to actually cope with these and not each year to hear about these stories in terms of, you know, in like, some of, some of the stories and some of the personal stories that mm. we're hearing, Jerry, are really, really very disturbing in terms of what people yes. are going through. But th- this should not be unexpected. This is going to happen each winter. COVID is here. These viruses are going to stay here. So that increased burden is not going to disappear. So you have to plan for that accordingly. Mm. And, and you know, 5,000 beds is a lot of beds. But look, at it's a war footing we need to get on here. And a minister visiting, uh, you know, A&Es is all well and fine for photo shoots and talking to people. It's action we want, not uh, opportunities like that for PR. We need action from government here. And as you say, a, a real plan to be enacted ASAP. And look, at we, we understand and you understand there's the question of where, you know, the, the buildings themselves and then staffing those beds, etc. And that's all part of parcel of it as well and the wider health system with GPs but look I hear what you're saying and I hear what you're calling on today and I would support you fully in that Paul look it's always great thank you so much for talking to us again today I'm sure we'll be in touch during the coming months uh, but you're so good to us and we do appreciate it you too Jerry and happy new year to you and all your listeners
Many happy returns. Thanks a million, Paul. That's Professor Paul Moyna, one of our own, of course, from the North East, Head of the Department of Biology and Director of the Human Health Research Institute at Maynooth University. Deirdre says more beds needed for sure, Jerry, and perhaps bringing back the masks may have to be looked at. Hi, Jerry, says another list, and nobody ever says uh, or talks about the increase in the number of refugees uh, that also contribute to... Uh, the increased load on our ED departments in hospitals. I'm sure they have no GPs on their first port of call, maybe the ED departments. Yes, it's another point as well, and I'll make another point here. Within the health service, where would we be without people from abroad manning our health service? They're a huge and a huge part of providing health care in this country. Always remember that too. Louise, the darts, I mentioned it when Paul disappeared there for a moment. Did you see the final last night? I, no. No, but no. I saw a lot of posts about oh, who won and it was an incredible ending. It was an ending. incredible match, really, Louise. Like, do the chat, do the chat. <laughs> which? Oh, Michael Van Gerwen. But no good doing that. It was Smith that went. He has he a chant. He has a song. They all have a song <laughs> that they enter the stage with. The dancing girls were back too. Oh, the dancing girls were back. I thought they were back. The walk on girls. You know, oh, the right. girls that walked on with them. But the dancing girls were back for the darts this year. Uh, good to see. Um, anyway, uh, he has a song. I'll, we'll check out Smith's song. He has. But Louise. A nine darter. I did explain to you this you morning, did. didn't I? I explained mm. to you what nine darts means. They start at five oh one and they have to get to zero. And to get to zero they must finish on a double, which is the little the outer circle at the top. It's tiny. They must hit a double to finish. But nine darts, if you can get five oh one and nine darts, it's unbelievable. And there was no nine darter in the world championship this year at all. From it began in early December till the final. Right. Until the final last night. When both Van Gerwen and Smith threw a final dart for a nine darter together. Van Gerwen first, double 12 he went for for the nine darts. He had eight got and it, double 12 would have brought him from 501 to zero. He just missed it by a fraction, Van Gerwen. And then Smith stood up, bang, 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 and no got nerves. the double 12 and the nine dart. Oh, Louise. I was, I was roaring and hopping up and down myself with excitement. It was fantastic. It really was. Knife edge, so. Well, which? Knife edge. Knife edge. Knife edge. But anyway, Smith won well in the end and congratulations to him. He's a lovely guy. His wife and children were there with him as well. Wonderful to see. Where's the other chap from? You're saying uh, Van Gerwen, Smith from England. Smith is from England, Van Gerwen from Holland. He's okay. cocky boy, Van Gerwen. He's taken down a peg last night for sure and I think a lot of people would be happy with that. Coming up after two and late lunch, referees required but taking us towards top of the hour. It's Mr Van Morrison on the 4th of January as we set out in a new year. Yes, and there'll be plenty of days like these. When it's not always raining There'll be days like this when there's no one complaining, there'll be days like this. Well, the phrase victims of their own success comes to mind when I think about what we're going to talk about here over the next wee while. I'm talking about um, la- ladies GAA and me, and of course the senior ladies team, their success in recent years, unprecedented, double All-Ireland senior champions to cap it all off, has really lifted all boats in the county. And I know that young women all over me are taking up the game in their droves, which means there are more teams required, more games and what you need to conduct a game? You need a referee, of course. And referees are in demand in the Royal County. And to tell me more, I'm joined on the show this afternoon by Porrick McDermott. He is a very important man in ladies football in Mead. He's the assistant PRO, county teams liaison officer. And he is the referees coordinator. Porrick, welcome to the show. Good afternoon to you. Thanks for having me. Not at all. So you need, it just doesn't add up with the numbers, does it? It certainly doesn't. Um, the success, as you said, of Mead Ladies uh, Senior Team over the last few years has led to an exponential increase in the amount of playing numbers, you know, starting off at nursery. Um, three, four years ago, we had uh, playing numbers of about 4,500. That is now almost double that at 8,500. Wow. Uh, now, unfortunately, the, the increase in refs has not... Uh, uh, being at the same. Uh, in fact, the, the level of referees is much the same over the last three years. 
Mm. Uh, which is which is a serious problem for us. Of course it is. Now let's get to the meat of this. And when you're talking about referees, what's the minimum age? And we're talking about men or women here who can volunteer to be referees. What's the minimum age? What's the maximum age? There are, I suppose, three different um, strands of referee. And uh, the youngest would be Go Games, where they referee... Uh, non-competitive games from nursery up to under 11. Mm. Uh, now, we don't seem to have a problem in relation to that. Um, minimum age is 15, but we have uh, well over 100 referees on our books. Okay. Um, so there's a lot of interest uh, in relation to goal games. Then the next strand will be uh, what you call grab your youth referees. And they referee competitively from under 12 up to under 16. And the minimum age for that would be 17. Okay. And, and then you have the, I suppose, more established senior referees uh, who will referee the adult games. So, for example, uh, the Grab Your Whistle youth referees, after a couple of years, if they feel confident enough, they will go on to establish themselves as an adult referee. Okay, so you're talking about 19 to 20, say roughly 20 years of age up uh, for the senior games. And when do you have to hang up your whistle? Well, there is no set. Um, I know with county, I think it's something like 50 or 55, but in the club scene, yes. there is no uh, set okay. age criteria. There, We have referees on our books who are in their mid-60s. Yes. Um, and, and unfortunately, even if there was an age criteria there, um, because of the shortage of referees, we certainly couldn't be asking referees to stand aside. Yes. Uh, we, we wouldn't be in a position to... Uh, replace those referees unfortunately mm. and you know they say about uh, different aspects in life it's never too late to do this that and the other education is one big one you hear it's never too late I take it to take up the whistle is it Parik? Absolutely not you know there are a number of reasons why uh, you know someone would take up the, the whistle you know particularly if you have a, a strong interest in the game and you want to maintain a, an involvement or an interest in the game so, you know, if you're in your 30s or 40s, there's absolutely no reason why you can't uh, get involved. We have the training, we have the, the systems on board, we have the, sort of a buddy system to help out referees. So uh, referees will not feel isolated, uh, for the want of another word, uh, if they're out refereeing. Uh, certainly in the early stages of the career, uh, we will tend to assess them and, and just you know, keep an eye on as to how they're they're progressing. Mm. And training, how long does it take for a referee to be trained that they can actually go out and take charge of a game? It is literally just a one-day course, right. a, a full-day course, and then they are assessed by qualified referees. Um, now, that could be during a blitz or it could be during an under-12 game or something along those lines. So, it's, it's relatively quick um, in terms of the education process. I suppose the key thing here is that they need to have an intimate knowledge of the rules. Mm. And once they do, that's something that would be done on the, the training course. Mm. And, um, you know, it, they are assessed and then they will qualify. Yeah, and you learn on the job, of course. Like, the more experience you get, uh, the more proficient you become. And that goes without saying. Look, as well as that, it's it, you know, it, it, the games can't happen. I want to say this again. I've said this before. Without referees, no matter what we think of them, and of course, people have different views on referees. You know this yourself. We're all experts on the sideline, and we, and we roar out our opinions, and we, we don't even know the rules, or half of the rules, probably. Is that an issue with getting referees? You know, that whole possibility that, you know... You going to take some abuse. You hit the nail on the head there because the amount of expert referees on the sideline uh, at every game, it's, uh, you know, it's, I suppose, laughable in a way. Mm. You have supporters, for example. Part of the problem is the lack of, of uh, knowledge of the rules. I have heard it time and time again uh, at uh, games, uh, supporters shouting at referees saying, oh, Garrett picked it up off the ground, you know. That's allowed in ladies' football. Of course. Clearly, yes. yeah, cl- clearly um, people uh, have a lack of knowledge of, uh, of the rules. And that is 
you know, that is an issue in terms of the abuse of referees. And, you know, we deal, we, we treat that seriously. We deal with it seriously. Uh, our disciplinary process, which is uh, CODA, which basically stands for Complaints, Subjections, Disciplinary and Appeals, um, under the guidance of Eugene McLaughlin, um, they have handed down heavy financial fines to clubs uh, who are found to have supporters uh, that are abusing referees. Mm. So, you know, the, the issue is there, but I wouldn't uh, use that as an excuse for uh, not becoming a referee. Yes. I think there are a lot more advantages uh, than disadvantages uh, in becoming a referee. Yeah, and, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. So many people get tremendous satisfaction out of, you know, officiating, and it brings a lot to their lives as well. And it's never an easy job, even though in my time I've had me go as well, and at times I've regretted it. And, you know, that's the, the nature of the beast too, but it is a very, very important role. So for anybody listening to day who it might tweak something with them and think I might like to find out more or show an interest in that what's the easiest way f- to get in touch with you guys well the easiest way either to contact me directly uh, via the Mead LGFA uh, Twitter or Mead LGFA Facebook page or indeed uh, my um, my contact number I don't know if you want to give it out absolutely you give it out there yourself once you're happy to give it out away you go yeah, it's zero eight six four four one zero four three five. You've a daughter playing, I believe, for Dunboyne as well, and she's talented. Yes, I do indeed. Uh, she's been playing with the senior team here since uh, two thousand sixteen, and uh, last year, uh, obviously, we did three in a row in. Uh, in, in Mead. Uh, yes. I suppose we've been lucky as well in that we've had two of the best players in the country on the Dunboyne team in Vicky Wall and Emma Duggan. So mm. we're extremely lucky to have those two talented players. Yeah, your daughter Rachel is a talent too, I have to say. Coming back right. to the game, and you watch it yourself a lot, and I've seen you quoted about this recently. You believe that, you know, the, the whole area of contact in ladies' GAA needs to be looked at. Why so? Oh, very much so. Um, I believe the progression of Gaelic ladies, Gaelic games has moved on so far uh, and we're still dealing with rules that have been there for many, many years. Um, you know, you take the likes of, again, my, my club uh, uh, player, Vicky Wall, who is a phenomenal player, very strong physically uh, and a very, very fast player. Um, you know, she is uh, for the want of another word, misinterpreted by referees on a number of uh, occasions. Constantly, we've seen it last year in the All-Ireland final and indeed the semi-final as well. So there has to be, you know, it has moved on to the extent there has to be that bit of contact allowed, that bit of physicality allowed in ladies' football. They are a lot stronger. Uh, training is completely different now to the way it was even 10 years ago. So they are able to put up with that bit of physicality and that should be allowed. Well, there you go. Watch this space. Uh, Porrick has made the call today here on the public airwaves here on uh, Late Lunch on LMFM. Let's see what happens. Whistlers required in me. That's the message today. Porrick McDermott wants to hear from you. 15 years of age for Go Games and upwards. 86 is the number. We have that number here off the main number on LMFM if you'd like to find out more. I wish you well, isn't it? Just amazing where ladies Gaelic football has come from in the Royal County to where it is today. It's a magnificent story. And as I said, from a refereeing perspective, you're victims of your own success. And may that continue for many years to come, Porrick. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for joining me on the show. Take care of yourself. That's Porrick McDermott there. Uh, A great man. He is assistant PRO, county teams liaison officer and referees coordinator for Ladies GAA in County Meath. It's better. Tom Baxter on your late lunch this Wednesday afternoon. 2007. I can't believe this, Louise. Do you know how high it rose in the UK charts? I'm focusing on the charts now at the minute. Well, I was thinking the same. <laughs> I would love it because I could say it would be a two on Tuesday. Number 67. That's all. That was its highest position on the UK charts. Would you believe that? 
Wow. I wouldn't have believed yeah. that. It's a fantastic song. It made number 10 here in Ireland, but we, tiny market, really small chart. But uh, yeah, 67 in the UK. Couldn't believe it. I thought, God, had to be like yourself, you know, knocking on the number one door. But it actually wasn't. There you go. Anyway, in my musings on my break for Christmas and New Year, which I did SFA, I was watching television one evening and an ad came on for a cheeseburger mm-hmm. in McDonald's. And it was the UK ads, right? And a cheeseburger in the UK from McDonald's restaurant will cost you the princely sum of one pounds nineteen pence, right? One nine. One nineteen. One point one nine. Okay. One pounds nineteen pence in the UK. So I in my <laughs> empty mind <laughs> I don't know whether it was later that night or the next night. The Irish version of the McDonald's ads came on and it says enjoy your cheeseburger at Big Mac for one euro seventy cent. So 1.70. 1.70. Right. So in the Ireland, the cheeseburger. Cent. Well, 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 let's, well when you, let me do the adjustment for you. I've been doing my little well, maths here. <laughs> I'm taking on the Rachel Riley guys. The yes, excuse me, it's Rachel Riley now <laughs> doing the numbers here on your late lunch countdown. I did the numbers anyway. So one... One euro seventy here in the little old Republic of Ireland, one pounds nineteen in the UK for your cheeseburger at Big Mac, and allowing fifteen percent differential. I'm being generous because it's less today. It's about twelve percent differential between sterling and the euro. It would mean that the cheeseburger in the Republic of Ireland at McDonald's should cost one euro thirty five cent, not one euro seventy cent. So thirty five cent more here comparing like with like. Yeah, but maybe it's not that, you know, that simple. Maybe over here they have to take in extra factors like, I don't know, if there's a difference in wages, a difference in energy bills, that kind of thing. Difference in rents compared to the UK. Maybe, you know, it's not that easy that it should be like with like. You make very good points. Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) You make very good points, maybe, possibly. Look, I don't deny what you say. Are all the both ingredients sourced in, like, oh yeah, in the UK the, and then in Ireland? Well, They're not transported over. No. Well, the burger could be moved here in Ireland in a field somewhere and uh, over to the yeah. UK. A lot of Irish beef goes into McDonald's, and they have fantastic beef. I was just and thinking of transport foods. costs as well. Yeah, you know, I, I, look, there, there are factors, but it, on the face of it, mm. on the face of it, a thirty-five cent differential between. Your cheeseburger in Newry and your cheeseburger in Dundalk is a little bit high in my book. But I do accept what you're saying. You know, wages, is it higher here? Rents, you're right. You know, different other aspects, taxes, I, I'm not too sure. But it is more expensive. It mm. certainly is a lot more expensive here. So it is. 135 would be the comparable rate with the UK. But most things are, I think. Do it's more expensive here so. than UK. Everything. Would, would you say most in, in foodstuffs and everything? Um, well, mm. I was telling you kind of a couple of months ago, I went up to Donegal and I stopped off just at Asda on the way up. And I just, one thing that struck me was chicken, fillets, meat, uh, butter. No, Cheaper. much dearer. Even a pound of butter was like five pounds sterling. Dearer? You're, yeah. you're saying the price of those foods in Asda mm. were more expensive than here? Yeah. At the time, really, I think it was something like three six. Now this is this would be just like mm. little Aldi kind of whatever, but I think it was three sixty nine for butter a pound of butter, and so it was five pound sterling for mm. a pound of butter up there. I can't remember what the chicken fillets were, but I just remember well, there were then, a lot more. Then that would suggest this is out of kilter altogether. What I've mm. just told you, you know what I mean? Mm. Really, if, if you tell me that, but it's just an observation, and there are perhaps mitigating factors and more of them than on the surface. Uh, I'm taking into consideration but I just think in a way we are paying a lot I'd say we're paying a lot more here for you know many things you know you say the food stuff you thought was dearer there but but that was only those two things like you still get a lot things much cheaper Mm, as well mm. but it was just I just noted I was surprised at how dear butter was yeah there you go so anyway that's just an observation on the humble cheeseburger do you know how much a happy meal is in here for McDonald's. I'll have to wait till the next ad comes up. <laughs> no, well, I, <laughs> 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 oh, 
before. <laughs> I thought you were frequent McDonald's hold, a lot. Hold on a minute, hold on a minute. I'll ask Dr. Google here, so I will in a moment, and see what he says. I can go down, I'll come down and get a happy meal for myself. There you go. Yeah, I want cheeseburger happy meal or chicken McNugget happy meal and sweet curry sauce. I've I have just to have given sweet you curry the perfect sauce. excuse. Yeah, give me the perfect excuse to go and get a happy meal and then look at a happy meal for you, sir. <laughs> yeah, look at me. Look at me. Yes, I'm a, I'm a kid. That's my I'm job. A, I'm a kid. That's my job. Between these two ears, it'll never, ever change no matter what else does in, in numbers and dates. There you go. Well, <laughs> Louise has now thrown us down a challenge. Happy meal in the north. Happy meal Because I think it's, I, I just, I just saw, I, I think in the UK, a happy meal is three forty-nine Sterling. Hmm. From what I could look up here, while you oh, are you looking at it? Are you? But I can't find the uh, Republic equivalent. I know. Well, sure. well, why tell people? Why let people know in Ireland? That's our philosophy here. Tell them nothing. Keep them in the dark, <laughs> like mushrooms. You know what I mean? <laughs> this society works in an awful lot across the board. No money, can we'll find out the price. We're on the scent of the happy meal. That's and if they for have sure. the same amount of chicken nuggets, yeah. Mm. As long as there's six <laughs> or nine. Oh, is that the usual? Six, six or nine, nine okay. or twelve. I'll give us twelve. I deprive my kids. <laughs> give us twelve. <laughs> Throw them in there with three large fries and six burgers. <laughs> There's my credit card. <laughs> We were chatting with Parag McDermott a little earlier about the scarcity of referees to referee ladies GAA in Meath. Liam O'Neill, good to hear from you, Liam, is equivalent over in uh, the Wee County in County Louth. Uh, tells me it's a similar situation in Louth, the lack of referees, and they're currently receiving assistance, like in Meath. I forgot to mention that from Down Armagh and Monaghan surrounding counties. And Liam says we wouldn't get our fixtures played without those referees coming in to help us. So Louth are looking for refs as well. Liam O'Neill, check him out. All his contact details are online there and he'd be grateful to hear from you. Thank you so much, Caroline Cunningham. Lovely to hear from you. Lovely words. Happy New Year to you too. Now we move on in the show and I'm delighted to say hello to a man who is a most successful sportsman. Fantastic keeper, wonderful career in the League of Ireland, went into management then with uh, Drogheda United and is now the manager of the most successful side in the Meathen District League this year. Trim Celtic, double winners, League and Cup. Robbie Horgan, welcome to the show. Hi, Jerry. How are you? I'm happy really, to you. really good, and happy New Year to you too, Robbie. And thanks so Thank much you. for joining us. Congratulations on all the success you've had with this wonderful young side. Uh, oh, absolutely. Um, if you'd said to me in January last year, um, I wasn't even in charge of the team, or no intention of taking the charge of the team, and. Like everything in football, uh, everything happens for a reason. And um, I inherited a great bunch of lads, a really good bunch of lads, great bunch of great players. Um, and you know, look at the start of the season, we kind of you're trying to put your stamp on things. In in, in a sense, you're trying to bring in new ideas. Uh, I didn't need to change too much because they were a very good side, you know. So. Um, uh, just from from week one, really, you know, um, the amount of players we had down training, um, the players that bought into what we were doing, um, just it, it ended up being a recipe for success, you know. And the more we went on winning, uh, the more them goals became achievable. But as I said, did, you, did I, would I have thought we'd do a double? No, definitely not. But that's completely down to the lads and what they put into the the, the whole season and. Really, they've been going on, going for the last eighteen months, you know, nonstop. Mm. We've just had a little break over December now, so um, they're enjoying the rest. But because we're in <clears throat> two other competitions in the Leinster Junior Cup and the FAI Junior Cup, we're in the fifth round of the FAI and the third round of the Leinster Junior Cup. So they'll take place now in January. So they had a bit of a break over Christmas, and they'll probably kick in now again in January. Well done, Tian. Uh, best wishes in both of those prestigious competitions as you move on in them, and you have good scalps mm-hmm. under your belt already in those, so who knows where that goes. But look, you mentioned that you didn't expect this, and you took the reins there, and you've been a big part of the success uh, as well. But let's go back to 2019, because, Robbie... My God Almighty, uh, you came through uh, the challenge of your life. Tell us what happened to you, please. Um, yeah, going back to late February, early March, <clears throat> just wasn't fit in 2019, just wasn't feeling great. Uh, if I'm being honest, I 
just thought it was the man flu, Jerry, and I thought, you know, uh, people wouldn't understand the man flu, not that half the population. But, mm-hmm. but, like, just having colds and flus in general, that's how it kind of started off for me. Um, went to the doctors. Uh, I had a <clears throat> severe cough as well, and I remember being in, in the GPs and, um, you know, I... I he was checking me out and I just couldn't stop coughing. So anyway, I came, my wife was sick at the same time, more or less with the same things. And he gave us both antibiotics and um, I got steroids, as my wife would say. She came out with a small shopping bag and I came out with a large shopping bag of antibiotics and steroids and inhalers and everything else, you know. So mm. uh, look, I've had colds and flus in the past before, so... I thought this would do the job. It didn't. I just kind of day by day got a little bit worse. Um, I was sent for a chest X-ray as well, and but the problem with going for the chest X-ray was that uh, that won't be back in the GPs for a couple of days, you know. And uh, I was declining pretty rapidly now at this stage, you know. So um, and you know after about four or five days of just. Going to doctors, going for X-rays and whatever else. My wife wants me to go into A and E in hospital, and um, I did. Let's say I didn't want it. I just was stubborn against it more so, stubborn mule, thinking that look, it's just a flu or a cold, you know. So um, I'm very lucky that I took her advice, and she made me go. Otherwise, she would have got an ambulance for me. And um, when I went in, pretty quickly into Navan Hospital, um, I was rushed rushed through. Uh, I was isolated. Um, within a day, I was put into an induced coma, um, and I was in ICU. Um, and kind of the result of all that was that I had influenza A, double pneumonia, and then sepsis. So uh, it was a cocktail of illnesses which are probably deadly in their own rights, you know. Um, but I got the the three them together, so it, it was. Very tough, uh, you know, being in that day of being in ICU and being put into induced coma. I went through a month then of being in ICU, getting treated. Um, um, And when you're in an induced coma with this, uh, you don't really know what's going on, you know. Um, I always say my wife would tell a better story for the first month because they would have gone through hell. uh, especially in, in the first day where both families are brought in because they just didn't didn't know whether I'll survive the night or not, you know. So, mm-hmm. um, as I said, it was only after I came out of hospital that I'm hearing all these stories. So, uh, uh, at that stage, I didn't know what was going on and it was a lot tougher on the family of what they went through. And Robbie, you know when they induced a coma, you're out of it, as you say, you know nothing. Yeah. They they knew more about, and, and imagine being called to say, we're not sure Robbie's going to make it. And that was the word, you probably don't know this. We were no. hearing this in the community, yeah. your sporting contacts and everything. Heard, My God, Robbie is so ill, you know, and, and mm-hmm. uh, there was real concern for you. You know when you're induced into it, do you recall then, you know, I've asked many people this, when they start to, you emerge from it and, and you're in the, the world with us again. Do you recall that moment or that, that time? Um, I think when I was in the ICU and just before they kind of put me into induced coma, uh, I still didn't realise what was going on, Jerry. you know. Mm. Um, I knew it was very serious because as soon as I got into the reception, they moved me and isolated me. And as I said, down into ICU straight away. Um, and I just remember my wife saying, um, you know, look, um, to just go review stuff and they're going to put you out for a while. Um, didn't know it was an induced coma I was going into. Um, and then, you know, I was, I was intubated as well, you know, so the machine was there doing my breathing for me, so to speak, you know. I think, mm-hmm. I think one thing that did come out uh, afterwards was that um, the hospital wanted to move me to the Lord's Hospital but they would have been afraid to lose me uh, in the ambulance going yes. from, from Navin to, to Lourdes you know yeah. so um, at the stage I didn't know what sepsis was I didn't even know Navin Hospital had an ICU I'm very grateful that they do because otherwise I wouldn't be having this conversation with you now you know so yeah. um how, how long? How long did the did the induced coma last? A week, a week and I was in ICU yeah. for three weeks. For three and, weeks after know, that, yeah, yeah, and and they would 
they would have told me that to be in ICU for three weeks is very mm. unusual, mm. really mm. unusual. So, um, uh, listen, a lot of times um, pneumonia, whether it's single pneumonia or double pneumonia, can lead to um, sepsis. Um, but having influenza and then double pneumonia, that probably combined then into it being sepsis, you know. Yes. So, probably like every other illness, uh, Jerry, early detection is... Um, the most important thing, you know, with, mm. with regard to sepsis. And um, as I said, if I had left it another, even an hour, you know, I probably uh, wouldn't have made it through. So yes. I'm very grateful, not just to my family, but to the to Navin Hospital as well for what they did. And and even in the current crisis that we're hearing, the difficulties there are with, you know, hospital A&Es at the moment, you are, your clear message today is, if you're feeling like I was deteriorating, don't delay, Robbie. That's the message. Move. Yes, 100%. If it, look, if you're not sure, um, yes. as I said, early recognition and treatment is critical um, just to kind of trust your instincts on this, you know. So symptoms like shivering, fever, or feeling very cold, Jerry, or extreme pain or discomfort, you know, if your um, symptoms are pale and discoloured or even mottled skin, you know. Mm. And again, a lot of these things, as I said, I never heard of sepsis. So I won't be looking out for these things as such, you know. But mm. um, if you're, you know, find to be hard to wake from sleep, confusion. That that was one big thing with me. Like as I said, I would have had colds and flus and in the past. But you know, I was very confused with this at the time. I remember the week before I went into ICU. Um, you know, uh, I would have been on certain medication anyway and very, got very confused of what medication I'd taken and stuff like that. I didn't know it at the time, but that was probably a, probably a sign as well, you know. Yes. And probably, you know, as the days went, boy, you actually feel like you're going to die. That's, that was the overall feeling. But I was just way too stubborn to think, I can't beat this on my own, if you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying. And, mm-hmm. you know, um and as I said, if I didn't have the, my family around me, you know, shortness of breath as well would be another thing too. They they will be the symptoms to kind of yes, look yes. for, you know. So I, um, I take it when you eventually emerged from hospital and hmm. started back on, you know, your recovery back home and that, it took time. Yeah, um, I remember the hospital saying to me, look, you know, sometimes people depend on the severity of sepsis. Sepsis is a kind of three-stage or it's, it's sepsis severe sepsis and then septic shock, you know. So um, different people at different ages um, will recover, you know, maybe younger people recover um, more so than older people a lot quicker from, from sepsis. But I just think with the cocktail that I had of influenza A and double pneumonia as well, they said to me, look, this is going to take anything from three to 18 months, you know. And me being me, all I heard was... <laughs> Three months, you know, I didn't yeah. hear the 18-month part. And, um, you know, I remember being at the Town at the time, managing at the Town, and friends to Mick Connor and the lads down there, they were, they were great because they were in the middle of the season. And when that season was over and I was going through recovery, I said, right, I'll be back be back for the start of the next season, you know. So um, i got to be honest, I was the only one that thought that. Nobody else thought that. And they were right and I was wrong, you know, because... Yeah. With regard to um, sepsis, um, you know, you have to become, there's a reality that I had to face mentally, which was, look, I won't be going back to football. I won't be going back to football for a good while. Um, And, you know, football outside of family is my greatest love. And um, that's what I, I really know how to do. And. Uh, to be told that was kind of shattering, you know, but like that was, I won't say the least of me problems or issues, you know, I, I basically went for somebody that did everything, um, you know, 24-7, work, football, uh, family life, you know, it was non-stop. So probably at the time my immune system probably wasn't as great as and that probably led me to you know, con- contracting, contacting yes. that's a lot easier too, you know. Mm. So um, I, I knew, I, even, I remember even going up to draw the town and saying, right, I'm here. And, you know, nobody, what am I, what am I doing back here? This would have been around July or so, you know. And mm. um, there's no chance, there was no way I could hardly put one foot in front of the other, you know. I always go go through a lengthy recovery and... Um, 
And I, I was lucky that when in my playing days, and uh, you know that I would have been, uh, especially in my younger days, a good athlete. That stood to me as well too. You know, yes. especially through recovery as well. You know, but mm. <clears throat> what it doesn't kind of prepare you for is the mental end. You know, and as I said, not being able to do all the things that you used to do. You know, and people have to kind of look after you and you're kind of in the bed all the time or people are doing things for you I wasn't used to all that you know so I, I, I would say after about a year I I just I was getting better physically but mentally I was getting a lot worse you know so <clears throat> depression had set in at that stage um, and I got some I went to my GP and he suggested counselling um, through the HSE actually through a wonderful woman up in Lord Tossville and Drada. Um, unfortunately, COVID had come in at this stage then as well, you know, yes. so uh, there was no visiting face-to-face. This had to be done over the phone. Um, and again, something that I would have said I'd never need or I'd never need that. And again, one of the best things that I ever did, you know, because mm. it just gave me a reality of where I was in life as much as I was very appreciative of still being alive, you know, I had to come to terms with this is what you can and cannot do, you know, and it was go take time. Um, and as I said, I used to use all my time up by doing things as much as possible and filling in as many things as possible that I could do, you know, to, as I said, people having to look after me. And um, and that, that was that was really probably the hardest part for me to deal with. Yes. Um, but look where you are today and you've come through and you've used all the, the help that came your way. And, you know, it's great that you're here today to talk about it and bring the reality of what you went through, both physically and mentally, to, to our listeners this afternoon. Look, I have to leave it there today, Robbie. It's great to hear your story. And look, you're back and you're flying and you're <laughs> double winners with Trim Celtic as manager. What a year you've had. And on you go in Leinster and the FAI uh, Junior Cups as well. I wish you well and I wish you continued success and many years of happiness with your family and in football and you're a great story. Thanks a million, Jerry. Really appreciate that. Let's hope Arsenal keeps going as well. I didn't realise that I listened to you earlier on. Oh, I'm an old gunner, and we've we've There's two of us. Oh, good man, Robbie. We've suffered for years and years. Maybe, Absolutely. maybe, maybe could this be, could is, be our year. it could be our year. It could indeed. Anyway, good luck to you, Robbie Horgan. Thank you for joining me today. Take care of yourself. Bye bye. Best wishes and happy new year to Robbie and his family from everyone at Drogheda Town. Thank you indeed for that lovely message. A big sum of money, a substantial sum lost in Dundalk yesterday around five o'clock between the Ford Garage and Tesco. Did anyone pick up a substantial sum of money? There's a woman really distraught and a reward is offered. If anyone has any information, give us a shout here. 0419832000. I said, Louise, earlier on, all of the darts players, they have nicknames and they have walk-on songs, Louise, right? I thought you were joking. No, I'm not joking. They all have walk-on tunes. They do. That's played for them and they have different nicknames. Why do you sing that one? Which one? The one for... The other fellow, Michael. Michael Smith. Yeah. Well, I'm not even Because the one you sang yesterday, I was really sure you were going to... Which? Made it up. No, no, I didn't. The Michael <laughs> Van Gerwen song, that's what the crowd sing. Uh, but I'm not even going to attempt this <laughs> to turn everybody off late lunch this afternoon. But it's Michael Smith has a song, he does, and you love it, don't you? Yeah, it's a great song. So in tribute to the man who is the new world darts champion, here is the walk-on song from Michael Smith. Counting down the top five songs from this week of yesteryear. And today it's... 1993, this very week. At number five was Forever People, The Shaman. Yesterday I played Charles and Eddie, Would I Lie to You? And today we're at number three in the chart, the UK charts from this week in 1993. And it's a cover version of the Barry Manilow song. And this song made it to number 
three on the UK singles charts. It's at its highest position in our countdown uh, and won Best British Single at the 1993 Brit Awards. It was originally released in 1971 by Featherbed, a group of session musicians featuring the one and only Barry Manilow. Manilow reworked it in 1975 and it became his third big hit single, Donna Summer covered it in 76 and then it was Take That's Turn in the 90s to squeeze more from the song. Yes, number three on the UK singles chart. And this week in 1993, it's Take That and Could It Be Magic. On our top five countdown from this week in 1993 is Take That and Could It Be Magic. You're two tomorrow and then the big number one on Friday afternoon, round about this time on Late Lunch. Now, just to mention uh, that we're talking darts earlier on in the show and the League and District Darts League have their cup finals this weekend. The John Heavey Cup sees Karenstown take on the Fair Green and the Pheasant Drogheda on nine at nine thirty on Friday night, then on Saturday in Lynch's and Slane, it's the Tom Grimes Cup, Karenstown up against the Lantern. Big weekend of darts locally. Delighted to mention it on late lunch today. He is Ireland's most famous architect. He's a wonderful man and a brilliant TV presenter. And he's joining me next because you see the fifth series of the Great House Revival. It's going to be filmed in 2023 and Hugh Wallace is looking for properties that are about to be renovated here in counties Louth and Meath. He's with me next. It's a fantastic show, I have to admit. I absolutely love it myself and they're about to shoot in this year of 2023 the fifth series, would you believe, of the Great House Revival. And when you mention the Great House Revival, one man's name comes to mind. He's Ireland's most famous architect, a great guy, and I love when he joins me on late lunch. Hugh, welcome back to the show, Hugh Wallace. Thank you very much for having me on. How are you? I'm really good, and Happy New Year to you. And a Happy New Year to you. Anyway. Isn't that a great, I had a great Christmas. Had you? And, had yeah, you? down with friends and family and going dinner for 14 and... <sighs> Had a great time. Lovely. Great cooking is I don't have to do any washing up. <laughs> you have it sauced. You have I it worked it. out, you Wallace. I you really have. Anyway, the fifth series this year, and you're with me today, of course, our catchment is Louthmeath and the surrounding counties, and you're looking yes. for candidates. We're looking for candidates of buildings that are going to be transformed into people's homes. And we're looking for big, small, unique, old, new, not new, but say pre-1915, uh, 1920s. Mm. And we're looking to see what inspiration people are doing, particularly for other people to do up old buildings, because there are so many of them out and about. And particularly when you drive around loud, mm. it's amazing to see so many buildings on uh, vacant in the towns and cities. Yes. Uh, you know? And you know, Hugh, that's a point. And you know, it's a mood point at the moment in the t- our towns here in the northeast. when you think of Dundalk, Drogheda, and Navin yeah. and Kells and the big towns in our catchment area and Trim as well to mention. That is R-D. an aspect, isn't it? And our, oh, oh God, I, I leave out R.D. We can't forget it as well. But those, you see it yourself. There are so many that you look at and think, God, wouldn't that make a lovely home? Correct. And and there are beautiful buildings and shop fronts. Yes. And they, they just need to be loved and brought back to life. And it, it's so important to have people living in these towns and villages overhead mm. of shops because then they provide clients, customers. Yes. And if you like, unfortunately, the customers, so many of them now live in the peripheral area outside the towns. Mm. And it reignites the heart of our towns, doesn't it, and villages. It brings them to life again. This is the point. It does, yeah. And, and all of a sudden what you have is, is when we talk about sustainability, you know, 
what better sustainability than living in one of these towns or villages? Mm. You know, you have the butcher, the baker and the candlestick maker. And because you're living in those towns and villages, all of a sudden they become vibrant. Shops become sustainable. Yes. And, you know, it's just so important in this day and age. You don't need a car. You know, Eamon Ryan's going to sort out the public transport <laughs> so that be, everything will be perfect. You'll be able to get on the bus, travel everywhere, and you won't need a car. It's utopia we'll be living in in no time. There you go, you see. Absolutely. It really is. But to get back to the title, this is a very important point to make. It is the Great House Revival, but I've seen you. Look at the smallest place. Little cottage, a small outbuilding on a farm, you name it. Correct. Little thatched cottage with three rooms. Yep. All in the mix. So the easiest way then for people, if you're interested, if you're planning a project and listening to you and myself today, the easiest way is to get in touch with Animo, isn't it? The producers. Yes. Yes. Property at animotv.ie. And that is the one. Just drop them a line. Tell them Correct. you're in the market or you you have something proposed and they will get back to you. I promise you, they will talk they will, to you. They will, yeah. And we're very excited. You know, ideally, we're looking for projects that can start this year, that can start sort of over the next couple of months, because we want to follow the journey. Yes. Ideally, even if the project has started, Mm. we just want to follow the journey, because this is about inspiring other people. And, you know, we talk about the housing crisis, but there are 160,000 vacant properties in Ireland, and that does not include... If you have a building in the town and the ground floor is used and the upper section is vacant, Mm. that's not in those figures. So there are tens of thousands of additional buildings that are there to be converted back into residential homes. You know, uh, listening to you today, that's something I do appeal to people. If you have a property above another property, we're going to see at least one of these, I'm sure, on this new series. At least... I'd love one. Yes, we want to see one of these. And there's lots of them in all the big towns here in the North East. You know from your experience, and you've been at this quite a while, and, you know, I'll just ask you this. I've always been keen to find this. You, You go and see a project, and you look at a project, and let's say it's quite substantial and you meet the clients, etc. Have you ever doubted people that they might make it ultimately and complete? Yes. <laughs> In a word. Yes, because, but then mm. they, they completely dumbfound me. Yes. Because they do complete and they do so much work and invest in their properties. And, and if you like, what they do is just extraordinary. What they've done is amazing. That mill building, mm. you know, Mm. Up and down Lear. Yes, yes. That was extraordinary. Wasn't it? Wasn't huh? it? It really was. You know, and, and when you think about that, you couldn't see it. It was like a big lump of ivy. Mm. Nobody knew what was behind those walls. Yes. You and I spoke about this, uh, uh, that particular building on this show, and I tell you, I have to say, like you mentioned there, how many times did I personally drive by that ivy-clad oh. something in Dunlear and look what turned out ultimately. It's extraordinary, an extraordinary home. Mm. But huge effort yeah. was put in, yeah. you know, by by them to deliver that home. And mm. what I love about so many of these people is they end up having babies during the show. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. There you go. You see, it's another aspect. It could be another Indeed. angle of your life completely changed uh, when you entered the fray here and take part in this new series of The Great House Revival. I just want to remind people again, property at animotv.ie. That's Animo. property at animotv, A-N-I-M-O-T-V.ie. That is the route into this show. And it could be you, if you're listening to us today, that features this coming year and what a thrill that would be to be selected. Hugh, listen, you're so good to join us on the show today, Not as always. I wish you well. Thank you for joining me. Not at all. Talk to you soon. Take care. The brilliant Hugh Wallace. Bye-bye. Ireland's most famous architect and a real opportunity there to become involved in something special. Why do we love those property shows? I don't know, but I love them too. I'm a sucker for them. Tomorrow on Late Lunch, Tracy Carroll joins us. She feels lost and unhelped. You have to hear her story. Lucy Caffrey, Yoga for Women. I might take it up myself. And Nullug Naman and Burke's banter. But we leave you today in the company of Ed Sheeran. Eddie Caffrey's on the way. See you Thursday, 1.30. 
Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.